Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode in the Grinnell College Artist and Authors podcast. And today I'm very happy to say we have Kelly Harold on the show, and we'll be talking about a book that she co-authored with Andrea Leno and Olga Bukina. I did that right, didn't I? I got it yeah. right. The accent yeah. right. Yeah. Um, growing Out of Communism, Russian Literature for Children and Teens from 1991 to 2017, a uh, kind of tragically timely book, I think, as all the listeners will know, given what's going on in Russia and Ukraine generally. But let's welcome Kelly to the show. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you. Hi, Marshall. Could, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Um, I've been teaching at Grinnell for 23 years in the Russian department and in the linguistics concentration. I teach uh, Russian language at all levels, and also I'm sort of the primary teacher of literature and translation. Uh, I teach um, the novel, the short story, Tolstoy, um, uh, Nabokov, and I want to do a new course on Chekhov in the future. Um, I began my career in the late 18th to early 19th century, uh, writing on memoirs, um, uh, memoirs written in French. And... I'm a California, Californian by uh, origin. So you're loving the, the Grinnell weather. I can't. <laughs> even after 23 years, I have my happy lamp in my office. Um, I barely survive till May. Um, but yeah. usually the fall is nice. Well, here. when when I was at Grinnell, I graduated in '84. John Mohan. Yes, whom, I have he, taken over a lot of his courses. Yes, yeah. I, I took the Tolstoy course from him, yeah. mm-hmm. and it was really wonderful. And I should also say that I'm still in touch on Facebook with people who took that course. That's wonderful. <laughs> Practically a yeah. daily basis. Yes, yes. I'm in contact with many of them who are in that wonderful course. Yeah. I didn't take the Dostoevsky course. But Another co- colleague course. teaches the Dostoevsky course. So. Yeah, a little bit too dark for me. Well, that it's. <laughs> I could, you know, I teach Dostoevsky in the novel, but um, I could not do a whole semester of him. Uh, it's the not... Chekhov sounds great. I'm a big yeah. Chekhov short story fan. I, I am those too. Things I am are too. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Or maybe we should go for Gogol. I don't know. Is Gogol still considered Russian or is he Ukrainian now? Or yeah, is there that's a big a, fight that's, over this? That's a really good question that I don't know the answer yeah, to. Yeah, well, let's not even go there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was, he was the inventor of kind of modern, satiric, absolutely um, uh, surreal comedy. I always think of him as Woody Allen before his time. <laughs> yes, that's a, that's a nice uh, analogy. Um, when I teach this short story, we, of course, read a lot of Gogol, but, yeah. um, and students always really respond that's good. So what, what's, it, what, what's it like teaching at Grinnell? Are you, I guess you enjoy I love, it. You I love 20... teaching at Grinnell. I've, I've stayed here despite the weather and despite yeah. living in a small town for this many years. Um, I love working with our students. Um, they're a good, a good group. Yes, that was my experience yeah. as well. I came yeah. from Kansas and went to Grinnell and I thought, yeah. wow, I'm surrounded by smart people. That's right. great. Not that okay. people in Kansas aren't smart. They are plenty smart, but yeah. they were No, much I was actually, smart. I'm. my parents are from Kansas. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I always say they're Kansashian, which I <laughs> yeah. know is not the right, uh, um, 
um, adjective. Adjective for them, yeah. yeah. Kansan, yeah. I think yes, is where Kansan. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I am. Anyway, so let's turn to the book. Why did you write Growing Out of Communism and what were you hoping to accomplish with it? Well, it started out uh, almost as a general interest. So uh, Andrea Lanou and I, um, are very close friends. We went to graduate school together. Um, we both spent a lot of time in Russia in the 1990s. Um, and my first trip was in 92. I think hers was, she still managed to visit the Soviet Union, but I was unable to uh, when I was in college. And uh, 90, 92 was my first trip. And we, we would be back every single year throughout the 1990s. And we started noticing all of a sudden, these books outside metro stations and children's books. And we were both drawn to different aspects of these. She was really interested in this sort of influx of branded literature. And at the time, it was brands that had lost popularity in the US. So Barbie was on the downswing in the 1990s. It has since recovered a little bit. My Little Pony had practically disappeared in the US. But in, in Russia, it was a big deal. And I was really interested in which translations were coming into Russia and how Russians were translating uh, um, uh, middle grade or young adult fiction. Uh, so we just were, you know, co- conversing with each other about it in the early 2000s and started giving conference page papers mid 2000s. And every time we would talk about, I I gave a few papers on Harry Potter translated into Russian and various sort of scandals and uh, around the translation of Harry Potter, as well as multiple fan translations of Harry Potter. And it was interesting to me, you know, what did Russian translators who have sort of a different approach to translation Mm -hmm. than we do, what were they doing with these works? And she was giving uh, presentations on how Barbie was perceived or presented in Russia. Um, and when we would get these papers at ACES or at SEAL or even Children's Literature Association, we would get questions like, but, you know, since the Soviet Union, there isn't any good Russian children's literature. There's no new Russian children's literature. And somewhere starting in, I think she in 2010 went to Russia and began looking at that question. And I followed in 2011 and started interviewing people. And what we saw was there was a story here um, that um, little by little there was being born a new Russian children's literature that was different from translated literature, although that was very influential. It was different from the Soviet past, which has a very, um, you know, prominent and important children's literature canon, really. It's unshakable, right? Mm -hmm. People, everyone read the same texts. Um, uh, You know, print runs were in the 5 million copies. All children read the same books. They all know Tchaikovsky's Telephone, right? Which we still teach in Russian language classes at Cornell. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And, but, and then I followed the next year in 2011 and started interviewing these new publishing houses that were not Western publishing houses, not big Russian ones, not former Soviet publishing houses, new small publishing houses that were producing original work. And essentially we followed these, these texts, the writers, the communities, the publishing houses for eight, nine years and um, while writing on them at the same time. Mm-hmm. And sometime around 2014, 2015, we brought in Olga Bukhina, who is um, formerly from Moscow. Most of her family is still in Moscow, but lives in New York City now. And she is pro- one of the most well-known translators of American children's literature and British into Russian and knows every single person in the community. Mm-hmm. So between the three of us, we were able to describe what was happening. And this story, this book emerged of this, essentially the birth of a new literature. I want to take a step back just yeah. for the listener's sake to 1991. I was uh-huh. there in 1991. I actually saw the flag come down. Uh-huh. <laughs> Wonder- yeah. I saw it. Yeah. And, you mentioned subway stops, and yes. for Americans, this is going to be very strange because yes. in 1991, subway stops is where all commerce was done. That's right, <laughs> as far as I can tell. That's Everybody right. had a stall. Everyone at- had a stall. People were selling their old, some of their. I see the Chekhov, you know, Polnaya uh, Sabrania, the full yeah. works of Chekhov yeah. behind me that I bought at a subway station in 1992. And, and there was a, 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 a huge number of new titles, just yes. an enormous number of yes. new titles appear. And I remember my Russian friends were just shocked by what yeah. was available that yes. had been brought out of the basement or wherever they had them. And yes. suddenly they were on sale, things that would not have been uh, on the market, let's say, in the Soviet Union, but it was all there and very suddenly. And there were tons of translations. Very, yes. very quickly. Very Lots quickly. of things. I remember Detective. Yeah. Detective books were hugely popular. Uh, yes. Translated in their thousands. Yes. And also Harlequin, which was Harlequin romances were, I mean, by 1992, 93, outside the metro station in yeah. translations. Yeah. 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 So since then, I suppose they've probably uh, moved into bookstores. They've uh, moved book into bookstores. Yes. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. That's probably good. So yeah. Babushka doesn't have to stand outside in the no, cold. No, Babushka's not outside. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, I wanted you to set the stage a little bit for us. Um, and I'm going to ask you about what children's literature was like in the Soviet Union. I understand this is a very broad question because the yes. Soviet Union changed a lot. Yeah. Uh, I happen to own a book that was published in about 1930, and it is uh, it's a primer for I would say probably third or fourth graders. And this thing is full-blown Marxist-Leninist. Yes. It's got lots of class struggle in it and good guys and bad guys. It's very didactic, extraordinarily propagandistic. Yes. Uh, probably had a print run of 10 million or yeah. something. And 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 it, it kind of, uh, I still own this book, as I say, and it really kind of shocked me. Uh, but then again, I imagine things have changed a lot, changed a lot in, after 1953, especially. Um, could you talk a little bit about children's literature in the Soviet epoch? Is, are there generalizations that can be made? Absolutely. So um, the first chapter in the book, uh, which was primarily co uh, primarily written by Andrea Lanou, uh, basically chronicles what happens in the Soviet Union 
And what was this canon that everyone knew? And what's interesting about Soviet children's literature is at least in its beginnings, it was very innovative. It uh, Poetry was the primary sort of um, genre uh, or method. And um, there were a lot of writers who couldn't write adult fiction who were able to write children's literature or to translate. So um, lots of uh, wonderful poetry, um, less didactic from a Soviet point of view, although the goal was to create a good Soviet citizen. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you look at Tchaikovsky's work, um, you know, there's a lot of focus on uh, good guys and bad guys, how to be a good Soviet citizen, um, how to be clean, but they're also really fun. Um, in, after Stalin and in the 1930s, when the Soviet, uh, Soviet writers were unionized, essentially, things take a turn. Uh, prose becomes more, uh, predominant and books like the one you're describing, it become, um, uh, very widespread. Nevertheless, there are still some adventure stories that, um, have an element of fun to them. Um, Although at this period of time in the 1930s, a predominant sort of idea comes into Soviet children's literature. And that is um, the notion of the happy childhood. So um, every child should have a happy, even magical childhood. Mm -hmm. And you, the darkness can't really be a part of it in any real way, um, which is not true of the works in the 1920s. And um, this happy childhood really persists into the post-Soviet Union. Um, So you might have kids going on adventures in these books of the 1930s and until the war, but they all take place maybe in the forest or on a hiking trip. Um, You know, there may not be any parents around, But the threats are all ones that they can um, deal with by working as a team, as working as, you know, a group of children together. It's the communal wins uh, in these books. And there's always a happy ending. In in the war period and in the post-war period, Soviet heroes become the primary narratives. And in fact, right now, the three of us are putting together a two volume set of translations uh, for an English speaking audience of Soviet and then post-Soviet children's literature. And we were, we had a hard time selecting texts that would Mm. be entertaining enough for um, an an English reading audience. Lots of them are about, you know, young teens who join the war efforts and are victorious. But the prose is all uh, it's pretty boring. I'm I'm trying to think of a nice nice way to say it. Uh, But yes, they're just pretty dull tales. And then, of course, after Khrushchev, I mean, after Stalin dies, and during the thaw, we do start to see, um, again, a sort of lighter touch in children's literature. Um, um, And this holds until uh, the 1980s, where darkness starts to creep in. 
Mm-hmm. And this is also really the first time where we see some attention paid to what we call in the book adolescence as a adolescent literature as opposed to young adult literature, because it's not quite the same as like American young adult literature in many ways. But um, you'll you'll see things like Chuchula Scarecrow, where the focus is on kind of a terrible bullying bullying in school and it doesn't quite have a happy ending so you start to see sort of the darkness of the end of the soviet period and the uncertainty showing up in children's texts mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. especially ones for older uh older children but the the main thing about the entire soviet period is that, again, like the book you had, the print run in 5 million, um, is that there were certain works like uh, Timur and his gang that every child knew, so much so that they even formed their own societies of of Timurites or whatever uh, (laughs) we want to call them in um, English, where kids would sort of replicate uh, what these children did in the books. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And it was all, you know, so every child read the same books. I I, I was very interested in what you said about uh, the happy, magical Soviet childhood. And I'll make a ridiculous generalization here. Every one of my friends, most of whom probably grew up in the 50s and the 60s, were adolescents in the 70s, yeah. they described their childhoods as nothing but wonderful. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> nothing but just and the I, greatest thing ever. That wasn't my childhood, I can tell you that. Right. But, yeah. And I, I, I think children's books had a lot to do with it. Um, and, you know, there was actually, you know, as you know, a whole system of activities that just like all the same books that all children did, right? The summer camp um, right. Um, experience for a month you were sent away or yeah. or spending your whole summer at the dacha with your grandmother, just wandering around the countryside. Um, uh, yeah. Even some people even fondly remember kartoshka the weeks where you had to go right. um, <laughs> dig potatoes. I mean, I did that. <laughs> did you do that? I did that. Yes. Yeah, my oh. ex-husband always ran away. Uh, he didn't like that. But I have friends now who were fo- were called that fondly. You know, you're out there with your 13 year old girlfriends picking potatoes and not sitting right. in a school. Um, or like the Subotnik, where you go the, and yeah. give your labor away for free to the Soviets. I did that too. Um, yeah, and it was quite fun. I got to tell you. Um, yes. So let's move a little bit past. Uh, the Soviet Union. And uh, so who published books in the Soviet period? And just very briefly, let's, let's kind of lay the terrain there. So after 1930s, there was basically only one major publishing yeah. house called Ditke's. Um, and um, primarily based out of Moscow, but also in St. Petersburg, uh, they published everything. In the 1920s, mm-hmm. there were still independent publishing houses, um, but beginning around 1931, that was all over. So, um, yes. Yeah, the, the they, reason I asked this question is to, again, set the stage for the next question, which is, how did publishers emerge? This was a very monolithic publishing environment. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. How did new publishers emerge in 1920? I mean, how would you even do it? 
I'm just interested in that. Yes. So in the 1990s with privatization and especially with the um, uh, new laws that allowed for private or joint jointly held enterprises, um, people started forming publishing houses out of their apartments. Uh Um, So the two biggest publishing houses in Russia today, at, at least until... February 24, uh, 2022, or is it the 23rd? 24, I think. Um, In any case, are Exmo and Este. And when I say the largest, between the two of them, they have 30 to 40% of the market, Mm -hmm. um, which is, of course, not like the Soviet era, where Ditgis had 95% of the market, let's say. it was just, in one case, two people, in another case, three. They created these publishing houses. And publishing houses were built in the early 90s, um, mid-90s on translations. That's where they earned their money. Uh, that's how they could make money fast. Yeah, let me, I, I was going to interrupt you there. That leads directly to my next question. And yeah. that is, this is kind of the low-hanging fruit, the translation play. That's um, right. And, and I was wondering how they picked the books they would translate, how they translated them. Yes. They, did, did they bother with copyright? I didn't you know. I did the, there are all kinds of questions here when you want to translate Harry Potter or Barbie or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. And I'm wondering how they negotiated that. Uh, okay. So in the very beginning, what they did was basically fill a pent up demand for books that were not allowed to be translated in the Soviet Union. Right. And a lot of those were in the public domain. Mm-hmm. So they did not have to get uh, uh, rights. And in fact, uh, I wouldn't say it was until the late 1990s that rights negotiations really began in an international way where Russians were doing uh, or conducting publishing business in the same way as everywhere else, uh, where you obtain the rights at a a rights fair or um, uh, just directly negotiating. Um, Before then, they just published what what wasn't allowed to be published, right? (laughs) Orwell or, uh, you know. I remember this. Yes. uh, uh, Enid Blyton was published in children's literature just immediately into great monetary success, Mm -hmm. right? And you think of how many books Enid Blyton wrote. I don't know, a hundred maybe. Those were all out there for free. Agatha Christie, I think, was brought in as well. Uh, Not that... Uh, Maybe she came in pre-Soviet, but um, uh, this ability to publish things that were already available but not allowed in the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. was where the first money-making, this is what built these publishing houses. Mm -hmm. And there was a great hunger for these, what what, what Russians would say is Western texts. Absolutely. And you mentioned the detective novel uh, for adults and also for children. This became things that people who had been um, journalists, uh, writers of other kind, began writing in the 1990s as well. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, Genre fiction that could be written fairly quickly, but already in a Russian setting as opposed to a Western setting. Um... Uh, these were some of the first works that were original. 
Right. And, and yeah. the, 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 there is an endless stream of um, children's and YA, as we call it, books available. Eventually, they found Russian authors, right? That's I mean, right. There probably were a lot of people that wanted to write these things. Absolutely. Again, pent up, this is pent up supply. Yes. And we see this actually first in a group of poets called the Black Hen Collective, who so some of them were still writing in the Soviet era, but they banded together and published a manifesto just like poets did in the 1920s. Yeah. Uh, this is what our poetry is going to do for the world. And they were some of the first original and original writers in children's literature. Mm -hmm. um, and they took on like the early Soviet poets, a playful tone, mm -hmm. but they made an explicit uh, statement in their um, manifesto, which was, we are going to treat children differently. There's going to be a new adult child relationship, one in which we respect the child's point of view, right? Yeah. Uh, we're not going to tell them, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. Uh, we're going to um, respect the child for who the child is. Mm -hmm. And that was a completely different yes. idea of child agency, right? And their relationship to an authority figure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I'm wondering how they dealt with certain themes in Western children and YA literature. I'm thinking of a specific book and I don't know how to classify it. Watership Down. Yes. That is a dark book. Yes. <laughs> that book is dim, man. It is very dim. <laughs> and I'm wondering, did they cotton on to these books? Were they afraid of them? Because a lot of Western children's literature is dark. I mean, again, I have a 13 and 14 year old and I'm telling you some of the things they read, I'm like, wow. Right. <laughs> Even uh, some like the Hunger Games. It's kind of dark. <laughs> children took to these books, but some of their parents did not. Yeah. Right. And already by the end of the 1990s, parents and some educators were saying things like, we want the Soviet classics back. That's the only place there is good children's literature. This stuff from the West, it's Chernucha, it's um um Chepucha. Yeah, um. it's it's um I it's, could say other words too. Yes, but I exactly. Won't. But <laughs> let's say it's it's dark nonsense, let's yes. call it that. That yeah. it's not suitable for our children. A lot of American conservatives say that. That's true. That's true. <laughs> that is also true. <laughs> Although I don't think they read Watership Down. No, I don't think they yeah. do either. They don't even know yes. what Watership Down is. Yeah. A great book, by the way. Yes, it is a very good book. Uh, maybe suited more to adults, but yeah. Uh, yeah. But, um, yeah. So, yes. So, so you mentioned the classics. And, and again, I'm going to make ridiculous uh, generalizations here. Literature with a capital L, has a different status in Russia than it does in the United States. I don't know about Europe, but it just... Yes. And this notion of classic literature is a real thing. It's, Absolutely. It's, they can identify it. It's right. not complicated to them. Right. And I'm wondering how they squared their understanding of classic literature with a capital L with all of these new books. They did not square <laughs> it at all um, until very, very recently. And this is, in a way, uh, what we describe in this book. So everything that was sort of written between, let's say, um, until about 2013 was seen as 
bad literature. This mm-hmm. is not what we want our children to read, with the exception of some of those early poets I mentioned in the Black mm-hmm. Hand Collective. Um, that this has nothing to do with the, the the children's literature we grew up with and we know. And and again, you mentioned Russians have this idea about literature, yeah. but um, children's literature has this additional thing where in every country and in every culture where parents want their children to read what they read and what was important yeah. to them. So it tends also to be kind of a conservative, slow moving field of literature uh, for that so reason. So was there pushback against these books? I mean, would you find 100%, people writing? Oh, radio programs, uh, uh, in newspapers, um, parents with one another. And then, you know, by the end of the 90s, as the internet grows hold, you can find endless, endless um, live journal posts, especially because Russians, at least again, till a month ago, uh, continue to le- use live journal as a blogging platform um, on LiveLib, which is um, uh, Russia's version of um, good, what is it? Goodreads? Goodreads. Goodreads, yeah. Um, parents, teachers, uh, other um, journalists, educators uh, talking about um, how this new literature is harmful to their children. Yeah, well, this goes all and, the way back to Plato, corrupting the youth. <laughs> corrupting the youth. And it's not giving them, again, the notion of happy childhood and and or, and or a happy ending, right? Yeah. And that's one thing that they particularly, uh, these uh, early readers uh, latched onto, which is how can you give a child a book that doesn't have a happy ending? Yes, right. I mean, that's, I, I, that's, that's and, our role. And none of the YA books that my kids read have really happy endings. Oh, no. I mean, they really, I, I keep using this word dark, but these They're books dark. are grim. Yep. Yes. And, and, and they love them. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, and that's what's, um, I, what I find so interesting about children's literature and YA literature and other cultures is that you know, they really do take on the um, the mores of a certain, a given culture, whatever that mm-hmm. is. So American YA tends to be, although this has changed in the last two years, and this is off the topic, but uh, American literature tended to be highly individualistic. It is about you, the teenage individual who has to solve your own problems in the face of extreme adversity. Um the last couple of years, that's changing a little bit. Is that right? That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah, there's some more sort of communal social justice element to American, really recent American YA. So, so are there any particular titles, and I don't want to put you on the spot, there may not be, are there any particular titles that really enrage these Russian, I don't. I want to call them conservatives, but that's not even right in this context, where they're like, Harry Potter is going to be the end of our youth, or I The Hunger say- Games is going to be the end of our youth. Um, actually, Harry Potter is relatively well received. Unlike with American conservatives, the magic yeah. doesn't throw Russian parents. They like that yeah. element. Um, and, um, uh, Philip Pullman's, uh, his dark materials also seen as good literature, uh, with Russian parents. Honestly, it is uh, detective fiction horror, which has become quite popular, um, 
and um, really cheap Western picture books about, uh, we discuss one that's about shopping, for example, Mm -hmm. um, about sort of consumerism. Those are the ones that are really upsetting to parents. Barbie, right? Um, There have even been like anti-Barbie events in Russia. Yeah, but but this this is not who we are. I might join that. Yeah, yeah, I know, exactly. (laughs) I'm not making a case that Barbie belongs in Russia. I'm not not either. No, But I would say it's a combination of, you know, for the younger children, this sort of bright consumerist kind of cheap things that parents find tacky and not offering anything of worth to their children. Mm -hmm. And then for the older kids, series fiction, genre fiction, um, uh, novels they see without um, literary qualities. Yeah. Right. Those are kind of the two sort of areas of, and, you know, and when you walk into a bookstore since about, I don't, I don't know, 2012, 2013, you go into the children's section. It's huge. I mean, it's, it's something you couldn't even imagine in the Soviet period. Um, It looks like, you know, the Barnes and Noble now. Um, And the ones that draw your attention are exactly these types of works. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really hard for both children and for their parents to find more of this real quality Russian children's and uh, young adult literature that's being written at home is amongst it, uh, all of that. Right. Are the Soviet titles being republished now? And are oh, there people 100%. pushing them? Yes. Yeah. And some with new, beautiful illustrations um, and with, you know, uh, quality materials. Um, so. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to get too deep into this, but you know, part yes. of what's going on right now is a kind of culture clash. Yes. There, there, I, I mean, People I very much esteem and love in Russia look at some aspects of Western culture and they are scratching their heads. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. 100%. <laughs> but however, they do prefer um, the paper quality, the yeah. uh, the binding quality of hardback books of the type that we have um, in the U.S., right? Yeah. So that is, you know, so all the Soviet classics are, if you look at a top 10 list of what is sold for children, the authors are all the same. Chukovsky, Marshak, um, that it's, it's like a top 10 of Soviet children's literature. And then mm. there might be one other Russian, new Russian name in there. There's a very, very popular fantasy writer called Natalia Sherba and her books are um, also very well sold. Right. Well, I mean, you point to, I mean, I, I, I'll be honest with you, as a parent, I don't pay a lot of attention to what my children are reading. Yes. I don't think that's true of Russian parents. No, <laughs> I think it they is pay not a lot true. of attention yes. to what uh, the children they, are reading. They pay a lot of attention until children are about 13. Then those, uh, I mean, they pay attention to it, but it's harder now. Um, they read on their phones. They yeah. read on other devices. Um, and they get recommendations from their friends. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things I've noticed about my daughter, my middle daughter, she's 13, is fan fiction. Yes. Is there a lot of that? Has that taken off in Russia? My, da- my daughter so loves much, fan fiction. So much fan fiction. In a way, uh, the first translation of Harry Potter was um, a gr- 
an online uh-huh. uh, uh, activity where multiple people did translations of it into Russia. Uh-huh. Um, so then, and you know, JK Rowling is very litigious. Yes. Um, uh, she sort of forced the Russian marketplace to do an official translation because uh-huh. unofficial translations existed in, in many varieties and yeah. teens were reading them. Um, and I have lost track of your. No, question. that's all right. Uh, okay. Is there a, is there a Russian equivalent of J.K. Rowling? I mean, is there is there somebody that a Russian parrot would go? Oh yes, this author here, this one is. I yeah. think Natalia Sherba is uh, the Russian equivalent at this point, and uh-huh. she her first publication I think was in 2013, so it was relatively late. Mm-hmm. Has yeah. uh, and again, this may be kind of an unfair question, but has. Um, well, I'll put it most directly. Has Putin had anything to do with this? Is there, uh, is that, because in Russia, the state is often involved in things. Let's and just put that's that. That's the weirdest part of this story <laughs> is the Russian government paid no attention to children's literature from 1991 until 2013. Uh-huh. Uh, what happened in 2013? In 2013, they, they, the law on the protection of minors uh, was uh, came into force. I think it was written in the year before. But basically the law says that you can't not promote homosexuality uh, or uh, alternative lifestyles in any way to children. That's all my children are interested in. I know, of course. <laughs> and it even took a couple of years until the government started turning to certain works, certain writers, interviewing them. There's uh, one of the few Russian YA novels or adolescent novels that has been translated into English in the U S is called uh, in English. It's called playing the game and it features the young protagonist who's questioning his sexuality, Uh but his mentor is a young openly homosexual man Mm -hmm. and it takes place in a puppet theater which is a little unusual and in the end his mentor leaves the country but um not only does this teen not really know who he is um but his best friend is a girl who goes by the name sashok uh, and she presents herself as almost a non-binary character. Yeah, no sure. You don't know what that yeah, is in Russian. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and um, so that author no longer lives in the country. Um, yeah. And while it manages to still be published, it has to be published with these big, almost like the British cigarette packets that yeah. have a big label right. on them that says 18 plus. So this right. was done by the Ministry of Culture? And, yes, and I forget the guy's name, Mironov. What is it? I, I, I think I, it maybe it is. I don't. I don't remember. But no, no, the only reason I know about the minister of culture is that yeah. he uh, plagiarized my dissertation. Seriously, <laughs> well, a book I wrote. He plagiarized the book I wrote. Yeah, my friends in Moscow so wrote as, me and said, as, <laughs> as his dissertation. Yes, yes. That's another. Uh, I uh, always say that he didn't plagiarize it enough because he got a lot of criticism. And my uh, book is good. <laughs> <laughs> he needed to take more of it. Um, so I'm, very, is, yeah. I'm very sorry, but yes, yeah. uh, uh, 
Yeah. So it, it wasn't really until 15, 16, 17, where actual writers were called in for the content of their work uh-huh. or, um, uh, certain performances at book fairs, which are a very important thing in Russia, were yeah. censored um, or shut down. So, is there a new Samizdat? A new kind of do these are these books truly banned? Are people no, passing they're them not, around? They're, yeah. they're, people are passing them around. They are not banned. They're just published as for adults. Yeah, I see. So, one of my favorite uh, stories is a. Uh, recent novel that's written by a wonderful uh, Belarusian couple who write write in Russian and travel to Moscow all the time. I've met them at several different conferences, and they um, they wrote in the introduction to their book. Um, this book is marked eighteen plus, um, and that is because the heroine is a lesbian. Mm-hmm. Now you know that. Um, Enter at your own risk. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Parents and teens, it's up to you, right? Um, So, so yes, but I mean, I don't, again, sometimes I wonder, is this book a closed circle? Did we just describe a real uh, flourishing of new texts for children's and teens that presents a, a new reality for them. Um, they have a different agency than they had in Soviet books. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a new um, sort of identity as a child. What does it mean to be a child? Um, it means to be a thinking person who mm-hmm. is separate from your authority figures. Mm-hmm. Um, is is it over now? Well, that leads exactly to my next question and penultimate yeah. question, actually. Yeah. And that is, has Russian children's literature escaped its Soviet past? Yes and no, <laughs> which is where the title comes from. Um, growing out of childhood, uh, of communism. To some degree, it has escaped its Soviet past um, in that um, the texts are more global. They resemble more of what's written throughout the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And no, in that some of the themes remain, some of the um, uh, themes of whereas American texts are very um, individual and adults may or may may or may not be able to help you in russian texts for teens and older children the community remains important yeah uh, adult figures remain important so it's a kind of a two-way street yes right. they have but no, they're still part of that Soviet. It's such an interesting juxtaposition or contrast because there are many, as you know, many children's books that were written in, I don't know, the 40s, 50s, 60s books that I might have read when I was growing up that now are kind of, you know, they have stereotypes in them yes. and themes that like, we don't really want to go there anymore. Absolutely. Don't read that. Yeah. 100%. And, you know, I teach a course on American young adult literature at the college and I have to begin the course with you are going to see some things yeah. that you were going to find offensive, but they are a part of the Even development of like this Babar, genre. Like Babar, you oh, know, yeah, yes. or, or what's the, not asterisks, but um, uh, Tantan. Oh yes. Yeah. Yes. See, some of those, 
those. Yes. You, you look at them and you just scratch your head. Like, yes, wow. 100%. Yeah, my colleague Raquel Green teaches a course on um, American picture books and um, in the 20th century. And she begins yeah. with a lot, a lot of these texts that are so overtly racist yeah, that they really are. <laughs> it's hard to even believe. Yeah, I, should, I shouldn't be laughing because they really are. Yeah. And, and, and so now those are kind of being weeded out. I mean, it's yeah. tough to explain to kids exactly what's going on here with right. these books. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you kind of have to teach them to be historians. Like, well, people thought different things back then. And, you yes. know, it's complicated yes. for a kid who just wants a story about a troubled adolescent who, that's happens right. to be, who happens to be an elephant. That's right. <laughs> and again, that's what makes children's literature hard because grandparents remember reading Babar, right? Yeah. And they don't want to let it go. Um, right. And the same thing is true in Russia. But what is also true about children's literature is that there's always good new books. There really are. We they, have a children's they, literature channel on the NBN now, and I get oh, to see do? them regularly. Oh, yeah, we do. Okay. We have a I'll lovely have guy in Israel who he loves children's books. He's actually a biochemist, uh -huh. um, <laughs> and he interviews people who write children's books. So there's right. always a great number of them coming out, and and it, it is yes. terrific to see all the new titles. That's right, and they are, uh, and in other words, the racist text can be replaced. Yeah, we. Don't I truly particularly... believe that. Yeah. yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right about that. That's yeah. good. Well, well. Anyway, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you very much for being on the show. We it have a traditional to talk to you. Yeah, we have a traditional final question on the New Books oh, Network, yeah. and that is, what are you working on now? Okay, so I mentioned the two-volume translations yeah. that we're working on, so I'm doing that. But my next project may or may not happen. Um, I've always, as you can see with children, I've always been interested in, and maybe this is because of what you said about Russians know what literature is. I've always been interested in texts related to literature. Mm -hmm. So um, I started my work on memoir literature, and I've you know, in teaching Russian literature and in doing work in late 18th, early 19th, I've been interested in the French teacher, the French governess, the French teacher in Russia. Uh -huh. um, so, and I've always wondered what their lives are like. So um, I'm beginning a project uh, that the first chapter is on the Russian governess or teacher in 19th century Russian literature kind of 19th, we can include Nabokov at the end uh, with his his short story or chapter in his memoirs about his French governess, which is a very sad uh, tale. Um, but essentially these people, and it's an interesting power dynamic, right? Who, what culture does Rus Russia respect more than its own? There's only one, I would think. And yeah. I think it's France, right? I think that's right. Yes. So... These rich Russians, the aristocrats, would bring a, a French teacher into their home. They are at once an employee, but also respected for their culture. And these people also lived out who knows where on a Russian estate where they saw no other French person for yeah. nine months at a time until the season when they go to Moscow or St. Petersburg. Yeah. So any case, I'm going to be looking at letters and memoirs, uh, memoir fragments written by these teachers from France, Switzerland, and Belgium. And that's the other thing, too, is that almost none of them are from Paris, right? Mm. So these, these are not prominent French people, right, yeah. uh, who became these uh, governesses and tutors. Um, 
Well, it's I interesting write... you mentioned this. I my dissertation advisor, to go back to my dissertation, Nicholas yeah. Rezanovsky. Yeah. Oh, I he uh... he had a French governess. Oh my goodness. You yes, know... he did. And it, they were chased out of Moscow probably and ended up in Harbin. They were Harbinsi. Yeah. And they oh. took the French governess with them. <laughs> Do you know I took a Russian history class with him in Berkeley when I was Did an you? undergrad? Yes. Yeah, yeah. He was a very old man then, and he still maintained his habit of chewing s- snuff while. Um, yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't, I don't yeah, wonderful person. But yes, I mean, I remember yeah. I walked into his seminar room one day and he was speaking French. And I was like, Jesus uh-huh. Christ, how many languages does this guy know? And he explained like, to me, well, I grew up, I had this French woman. They lived, she lived with us, and yeah. they taught me French, right? Because yeah. all civilized people know French, right? That's right. <laughs> I mean, you that's don't. Right. Yeah. So I'm I like, want to no, know I'm about from Kansas, man. I don't. <laughs> so I want to know about these French people. Who who were they and what did they experience when they were in Russia? Well, that's so fantastic. All right, starting you... the research in the West, we'll see if I can go to Russia at yeah. some point. Yeah, that's sad. But anyway, well, when you're done with the book, if it turns out to be a book, we'll have you on the New Books Network. All right. Wonderful. Okay, Thank Kelly. You. Thanks for being on the show. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. Bye.